Well, I don't know uh, about you, but when I went out uh, for lunch and saw lasagna, I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to pay attention after lunch. <laughs> and now we're at 2.30. It's been a long day. It's dark. The odds of you staying awake are minimal. And so I'm just going to legitimize that right now. I if you need to sleep, you go right ahead. Uh, some of you already did so during Adam's session. So uh, if it's good enough for Adam, it's good enough for me. You're, you're welcome. I had, I had one horrible moment uh, when Adam was speaking where I was concentrating. And I'm not sure if you know what this is like. Sometimes when you concentrate, you, just, you need to close your eyes and just concentrate all the more. And so I did that. And then I sort of had that moment of coming out of absolute blackness. You realize I was concentrating so hard, I just buried into my own mind and may have fallen asleep. So, uh, I'm sure it was good. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear anything in that moment I disagreed with, I can assure you of that. Uh, so, if you need a coffee or if you need to get up or anything, uh, honestly, one of the things that I, I do find somewhat amusing is, is when you see people, because I've, I've done this too, like they're fighting sleep, right? And somehow they think they're, they're avoiding detection when, <laughs> you know, if, if I can just sort of do it quietly and then, and you see people's heads snap back like they've been in a traffic accident of some kind. And they kind of go, but, but surely no one saw that. And then slowly they start sinking again. And it's bam, right back. So if you need to do that, like just, just get up and like walk around or go get a coffee. That's probably less distracting for everyone. And it's not productive just to sit there hurting your neck anyway. So uh, I just want to read a passage uh, from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. These are famous words you're familiar with. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So for this last uh, session, what I want to do, just, just briefly, and I do mean briefly, is I, I want to look a little bit about at the time of the Reformation. Uh, because I think one of the things that we can do is we can always somehow treat Bible characters as, as if they're almost detached from reality, as if these were, were almost legendary figures or they were different types of people than we are today, or somehow God was operating in different ways, and, and he, he was somewhat uh, accomplishing his purposes, but it's almost as if these guys aren't real men. You know, we, we've heard these stories for so long, and we recognize that God, you know, he, he met with Moses in ways he doesn't meet with us, and he spoke through Isaiah in ways he doesn't speak through us, and so we get that. And so sometimes we can say, well, the biblical history, the way we treat these stories, is it's almost like they're, they're detached from real history. If you were in the Bible, you, there must have been something slightly different about you than is the case today. And so I want to look at some of the reformers in the Reformation, but 500 years ago, to show that this principle of being a spectacular failure, it's not just true of biblical characters, it's also something which is being worked out in church history. 
a part of the era that we are in. After the apostles, long after you know, the canon of Scripture was closed, long after the day of Pentecost, these sorts of realities, the way God works with people, is just the same in church history as it was in the biblical era. And so if we can establish the way God worked with people in the Bible and at a pivotal moment in church history is the same, then we can know for sure this is how God's going to continue working with us today. So, I don't know how many of you uh, enjoy church history. Uh, maybe church history, for those of you, if you don't enjoy history, it's a real tough sell uh, in the afternoon after a long day to be dealing with historical realities. But I think this is important. I think these are things that we're familiar with theologically and also sometimes historically. Uh, last year, October 31st, was the 500th anniversary of the event of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And so we celebrated that. In fact, here's something fascinating for you. Uh, you can tell sort of the, the cultural horizon at Google. In every special event, you know, they'll, they'll have some sort of flagship Google search page. Last year, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're an atheist, you have to recognize that the, that, that event is one of the most pivotal events in the history of the world, uh, certainly in the Western world. The amount of, of implications and entailments that we experience today because of that event is incalculable. And not a single little reference you know, on that Google page. Uh, if you had said to people, uh, just, if you had sort of just gone to Tim Hortons and talked to someone random and said, did you know today's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? The odds are that most people you would talk to would never have heard of it. Right? That, that just sort of shows where our society is. So what was going on? What was going on in the time of the Reformers? Well, a little bit of a backstory. Uh, long before Luther, long before Martin Luther, in all kinds of countries, both sort of in continental Europe and in what today we would call the UK, people were recognizing that there was enormous moral and theological problems in the Roman Catholic Church system. So it's not like Luther, who was a, a monk in the Roman Catholic system, it's not like he was the first one who realized, hey, look, there's problems, we need to do something about it. Uh, for hundreds of years before Luther, uh, for decades and decades and decades before Luther, there were all kinds of voices who were saying, we need to fix the church. Uh, so, some of the problems with the church, first, was in terms of morality. In fact, the Reformation, you could argue, the cry for Reformation in the first instance was actually a cry for moral Reformation before it was a cry for theological Reformation. In fact, Luther himself originally wanted to stay in the Roman Catholic Church. This is why it was Reform. It was reforming inside the community. He didn't want to start another church. No one did. People wanted to stay in the Roman Catholic Church, but see it formed again from the inside to moral and theological purity. Uh, one of the massive problems that you had in the church, uh, so different from today, was sexual immorality. Uh, of course, you know that the priests couldn't marry, but the priests, the vast majority of priests, had concubines. So this is the way they'd sort of get around being married. Well, we don't have a wife, but there's this woman who we sort of take care of, who we sleep with, but since she's not my wife, I haven't violated the stricture against marriage. This was so common. Uh, fornication was so common amongst the priesthood that if you look at laws that were enforced during a lot of these, the time before Luther, uh, the number of priests, percentage-wise, 
who are charged with things like committing adultery, being engaged in prostitution, etc. The percentage of priests charged versus the percentage of priests in society, where there was an astronomical uh, disparity. So many priests were guilty of crimes, uh, violating sexual morals in society. It was unbelievable. In fact, people began to recognize the religious leaders, the clergy, are more sexually immoral than any other type of person in society. That was the reputation uh, uh, of the priests. They also noted the financial scandals. Uh, priests and bishops would get huge amounts of money given to the churches, and rather than feeding the poor, the money was actually taken from the poor, and it was used to build lavish homes uh, to keep the priests and the bishops, especially the bishops, you know, sort of lavishly attired. You think about some of the basilicas that were built around this time, the amount of gold and silver that was funneled to the Pope, and a lot of people were saying, look, Jesus didn't have a home. The, the, his followers were fishermen. How is it possible that now the person who represents the church of Jesus Christ which is, is richer and more powerful than any king in any nation? How can that be when there are poor people suffering? This does not look like the ministry of Jesus at all. With Combining with the money, there was also an enormous amount of political power. So the church sort of functioned like a quasi-church state. A lot, the Pope had his own army. You know, a, a lot of bishops had sort of uh, regionalized armed forces. And so people were, again, they were looking at the church saying, where's the gospel in all of this? Where's the imitation of Jesus? Where are biblical priorities for, for love and for charity? The church just seems awash in immorality, and these people are getting rich on the backs of the poor. So there was a whole moral problem. But there was also a theological problem. Now this would depend on who you read and who was interested. But a lot of people began to recognize that the claims for, for the Pope's authority were very overblown and did not line up very well with, again, what you see in Scripture. Who is this person who sort of appointed himself as, as the vice regent of God on earth? I and mean, who is this person who arrogates to himself the ability to speak for God and issue new decrees that are authoritative and binding? Who is this person who apparently has the right to absolve you of your sins or to get you out of purgatory? Who is this person? Where do we find this papal succession in Scripture? There are people who had problems with Mass. The, the re-presentation or the re-crucifixion, the bloodless atonement, re-offering Christ again and again and again and again rather than seeing his atonement at Calvary's being once for all. People were beginning to recognize that it was uh, impossible for people to grow spiritually when they couldn't understand the language of the church services they were attending. So mass and the church services were conducted in Latin, but only scholars knew Latin. And so understanding God was completely inaccessible. The, the services were not, were they were, it could not be comprehended by, the, by regular people. And the scriptures were not translated into vernacular languages. In fact, this is actually one of the shocking things for us. I mean, not only do we have one English translation 
But we have so many, our scandal is we have so many translations, honestly. And this is my, I'll just step aside just for a moment. This this doesn't count for my time. Uh, This is just for free. But one of the things that drives me crazy is there is no way, there is no way in good conscience every one of these publishers actually believes that their translation is a necessary translation, that it's actually contributing something in the landscape of English reading in the Bibles. But every major publisher has their own translation of the Bible because that's how you make a buck. To me, it's crassly materialistic. It's how do we increase our revenues. There's so many English translations today, we don't need another one. But people keep putting them out. Why do they do that? Well, because this company, if you put out a a Bible, you promote it enough, you get that slice of the revenue market. It's all money-driven. But there was a time not too long ago in England where people who translated the Bible into English were literally put to death. And owning a copy, just a little bit before the time of Luther, owning a copy of the Bible in a language you could read in England was a capital offense. You could be killed for owning a copy of the Bible in English. That's how seriously the church cracked down on access to the Word of God. And why was that? Because if the people could read the Word, then the people could ha- would have their own opinions about what the Word said. And all of a sudden, that hegemony, that, that absolute stranglehold on just telling people what they needed to do and believe, would be broken. So keeping the Scriptures just inside of the church, just for the scholars, just for the people whose livelihood was dependent on making sure people didn't know the abuses in the system that led to death for people who wanted to read the Bible in a language they could understand. That's the sort of corruption and power and control that the church had at this time. In fact, one of the scandals, another scandal, was there was an enormous number of priests who were just appointed to their jobs. Uh, Nepotism isn't anything new, okay? And so there'd be priests who were appointed to their jobs who didn't know Latin either, but since no one did, they'd just get up and just sort of gibberish along, and they had no idea what they were saying, and yet no one was the wiser because no one knew anyway. That's the sort of church life you had in certain areas. I, I imagine that sometimes in the, at my church, people feel that way when I'm preaching anyway, you know, but this was a little, little bit different. Uh, priestly confession, oh, to get your sins con- con- forgiven, you have to go to a priest. They're the one who has the right to tell you if your sins are absolved or not. Purgatory. There are a lot of people who are starting to recognize where do you, where, where, people could read the Bible. Where's this idea of purgatory coming from? And then indulgences. As the church raised money for, new building, uh, for building new cathedrals and all the rest, one of the things they said, the Pope would issue special dispensations saying, if you give money to this project, then I will take years of purgatory off your sentence. So purgatory is the place where you go, you're not not damned to hell, but you go to purgatory for millions of years or however long it is to be punished for your venial sins. Then once you're purified and cleansed and you've paid that punishment, then you're brought into heaven. Pope says, you know what, you give a a boatload of money to to my new basilica, and instead of a hundred million years in purgatory, I'll cut it down to ten million. You know, like, like, you can get all this time off, just give some money. And so people were starting, some people were going, that doesn't seem very fair. 
that the rich get out of purgatory because they have lots of money. And then other people were saying, you know, if the Pope has this kind of power, why doesn't he just do it out of mercy? <laughs> you know, he, instead of waiting for money, why doesn't he just say, you know what, I love you, get 50 million years early out of purgatory earlier. Like, like, where's the love? You know, where's the mercy? Why do you have to buy this? You know, why is it that the rich get this instead of anyone else? This created such a fervor. All of this together, over all of these, all of these years in all of these countries, created such a ferment that virtually every historian believes, even if Martin Luther had never existed, there was going to be a reformation. People were fed up with this. It was just a matter of someone being raised up to actually do it, and Luther was that person. Now, Luther, you know, was a Roman Catholic monk. There's a whole backstory to him that we won't we don't have time to get into. But he was doing something very interesting. He was teaching the book of Psalms. And he was teaching the book of Psalms from the book of Psalms. And this was shocking at this time. Because most of the university lecturers who taught theology and biblical studies didn't teach the Bible. They taught what church theologians had said about the Bible. So you take your course on Psalms and you really wouldn't read Psalms. You'd read commentaries. This is what so-and-so said about the Psalms. But Luther's working through Psalms, and he's also working through Romans. And he reads Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. Now, part of Luther's issue was he, as a monk, engaged in all kinds of religious works. But he said that if anyone could have been saved by monkery, it would have been himself. In other words, it, you know, if you're supposed to fast for three days, he fasted for six days. You know, if you're supposed to confess, you know, for two hours, he confessed for eight hours. In fact, he's, he, we know that Luther would go to confession so often and for so long, there were times when the person he was confessing to would send him back to his cell. So he'd say, Luther, you know, you're, you're wasting my time. You know, go back to your cell and come back when you have some real sins. You just, he'd go through everything. He was always in agony. How can I be made right with God? Which is actually, even then, beginning to show he had some understanding of human nature and the character of God. See, because the one thing that people accept far too easily in our society and in other world religions is, is that somehow there's a God and they're going to be able to measure up to his standards. But why would you ever think that? Why would you ever be confident that you are good enough in yourself? This is God. How do you know you've, you've lived up to his standards? At least in Islam, there's a little bit of sensitivity to this that, that Muslims will say, they don't, some, a lot of Muslims will say, they don't even know if Muhammad is in paradise. They don't know if they're going to stand in the day of judgment. How can you know? Allah is the one who judges. You don't know if you've been good enough. The Roman Catholic system, how do you know you've been good enough? Well, you can't. And so Luther is working as hard as he can to be, to be religious, to do what's right. He needs to be pure in the sight of God. He has to be, and he's at least taking it seriously. But then he reads that the righteous will live by faith. And from this he works out the system of justification by faith. That is, we are made right, we are, put on, we are pronounced on the right side of God's standard, not by our works, but by the grace of God. We are pronounced righteous by faith in God's promise and God's provision. We are not put on the right side of God's standard or the right side of God's law on the basis of our works. It's not the righteous will live by works or the righteous will live by their own righteousness. It's the righteous will live by faith. 
Now, at this time, there was a monk named Tetzel who was raising money for the new building at St. Peter's. And he was well known for his, his showmanship and his salesmanship. And the argument was the more money you give, the sooner you can get out of purgatory. Or the sentimental sell was you can transfer this merit. So if, so if your dear mother, your dear mother who gave you life is in purgatory, you can give some money and give her the best Mother's Day present ever. Ten million years of less suffering. She's your mom! How are you not going to do that? You know, so he's guilting people. He, he, he'd go into cities with, with fanfare and trumpets, literally, you know, in an entourage. And so Luther just absolutely loses his mind. You know, and so he writes these 95 pieces against indulgences, goes to the church door at Wittenberg, and the church doors were really like um, bulletin boards. This wasn't some sort of, you know, subversive thing. People would have nailed uh, up, you know, bulletins there all the time. And so he nails up these 95 theses about indulgences. He wants to, to debate them. He wants to argue that they're not meritorious, that they don't do anything at all. But he wants to remain a Roman Catholic. He just wants to curb the abuses. Now, Luther's reforms are rejected. The Pope continues, because after all, he's getting a lot of money. Indulgences are still being collected. And so Luther starts thinking through, hey, wait a minute. How is it possible that we're doing something so flagrantly wrong to support a doctrine that's so flagrantly wrong, and the Pope is all for it? And he starts working through, what does it mean for the Pope to have all this authority? And he begins to look at the Bible some more. He begins to look at church history. He begins to look at all the, 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 de the declarations of popes that have been contradictory over the years. Well, this pope said this, but this pope said something, something different. How the church councils of the Roman Catholic Church have, have put out conflicting statements as well. And he begins to realize the pope is not an infallible authority at all. Neither are these church councils when they meet. In fact, there's only really one authority, and that's the Word of God. This is what we need. And this is actually one of the reasons why Luther translates the Bible into German, because he realizes the people need to read the Bible. The people have no idea what's going on. It's the, not the Pope. It's the Word of God. And so he's summoned to debate uh, papal authority in 1519, two years after nailing the 95 Theses to the wall, and he's literally going to this debate with his, with his life on the line. Other people who had spoken up about similar concerns had already been executed. Some beheaded, some burned to death. And so Luther is not doing, this is not the sort of context, I, I've gone into, I've had university debates before, um, and so I, I'm, not, I'm going in knowing a good chance you know, I'm, I'm going to be insulted or whatever. But I'm not going in thinking, it would change my mind. You know, a couple years ago, I went into a debate at York University, representing the Christian perspective, obviously. And, you know, if I had been driving there thinking, you know what, the odds are about, I don't know, 50-50 that in the parking lot someone's going to burn me to death, I probably wouldn't have gone, right? So this, but here's Luther. In fact, that was actually interesting. That was a debate with um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And so I was debating their Muslim, their Islamic scholar, and I was there as the token Christian. And so we're debating. And I wasn't nervous at all because the, the Ahmadiyya community is, is, is a peaceful branch of Islam. Um, so I thought, so we're fine. We're good. They, they, they're, they're fine. And then there was, there was a student sitting from probably from me to that gentleman right there, front row. And uh, 
he goes after, the, someone asks a question about jihad. And the Ahmadiyya Muslim says, you know, jihad is just internal spiritual struggle. It's a metaphor, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, it's lovely. And this student goes after this guy, says, you're lying. Jihad is not a metaphor. It's about actually killing the infidels. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, Oh boy, where you know, because I'm the infidel in this exchange, right? So, so you're saying you agree with killing people, and there's no bodyguard between me and you. You know, so that was the one time I felt a little bit nervous. But you can imagine, though, at least you know the guts or the faith of Luther to say people are literally dying, but I'm going to go and speak out against this because it's wrong. I mean, that says something at least about courage or foolishness or something, you know. But not all of us would do that. Luther at this debate says this famous line. If you know anything about Luther, you've probably heard this. He's told, he's asked, will you recant? Will you take back the things you've said? Luther says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. I will not turn away from what Scripture teaches. That's what he says. No matter what, this is where I'm going to be. He leads this great theological and moral reformation in the church. Uh, John Calvin, sort of a second generation consolidator in the Reformation movement, you know, does a lot of very similar work. But Luther was the one who really was like a sledgehammer coming in, you know, fighting and, and, and continuing on, speaking up at every opportunity. He's the one who sort of broke things open. Uh, and then there were other people who came along and were able to work sort of in his wake. Part of the... Uh, Reformation theology, which really all Protestants should hold to, and which is fundamental in evangelical thought, uh, is summarized. This isn't just Luther. This is sort of a broad composite of Reformed theology. We sometimes talk, we sometimes talk about the five solas of the Reformation. Right? And because it's getting late and everyone's tired, we're going to be interactive. This is going to be so fun. Uh, so if you know what one of the solas is, if you know what all five of them are, but just give me one. What's one of the uh, five solas of the Reformation? Sola Scriptura. And what does that mean? Yeah, Scripture alone. What's our authority? Scripture alone. Scripture is necessary. It's authoritative. It's clear enough for private interpretation. We don't need a professional guild to tell us what the Bible means, and it's sufficient. The Bible alone is what we need. We don't need a pope. Sola Scriptura, that's where we stand. We have no idea how shocking that was. That was a bombshell in the church. Scripture alone, what are you talking about? The whole argument was, people can't understand the Bible. They need us. Well, yeah, especially if you won't give them a Bible in the language they can understand. But Scripture alone. What was another one? Yeah, faith alone. Sola fide. By faith alone. The just shall live by faith alone. Not your works. Not being a monk. Not indulgences. Faith alone. What else? It's two. It's three more. You know. You're just being, you know. Come on. 
Grace alone. Yeah, listen, and if you don't know, just make one up and I'll just say yes. So, because the reason I'm asking is I don't actually remember, so I'm hoping to get them out. Grace alone, sola gratia. Yeah, we are saved by God's grace alone. It's not our works, it's grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is a great instrument by which we hold on to the grace of God. What's, uh, two more. Yeah, solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is our Savior, no one else. Christ alone is our Lord. And one more. Yeah, soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. And in fact, one of the amazing things about this principle, uh, glory to God alone, is something actually, you know, last year, publishers, you know, to make a buck, were putting out all kinds of Reformation resources. Zondervan actually did a really good little study called the Five Solas series. It's actually really good, where they put out a book uh, on each one of these themes. David Van Drunen, who's an interesting guy, I wouldn't recommend him for everything, wrote the Sola Dea Gloria book. And one of the points he makes in it was so obvious, but it had never occurred to me. He said, we often think of Soli Dea Gloria, glory to God alone, as this is what we're supposed to do with our lives. And we are. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Fine, that's great. He said, but Soli Dea Gloria is actually in the first instance throughout the Bible, it's what God does. This is a statement about God's mode of operation. God is, bringing, God is acting to bring glory to God alone all through the Bible. That's why we do. We're imitating God. And that never occurred to me. Yet God does everything solely Deo Gloria. God does everything for his own glory. I just never, never thought about that. So those are the, so those are the five solas. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone. That's a good package of theology, right? And, and the other thing that's crazy about it, though, is it's actually shocking given the landscape. No one was teaching these things. But these are the things we hold most dear. These are the sorts of things we would die for. This is the heart of our evangelical understanding of Scripture. This is our, the heart of our relationship with God. This is Christianity to us in its, more, or, in its most orthodox sense. These reformers were used by God to give us a recapturing of the Bible. That's an incredible thing. Martin Luther was brash, he had a foul mouth, he hated everyone who disagreed with him near the end of his life, including John Calvin. He authorized and legitimated war. He was horribly anti-Semitic. Early on, the reformers follow an interesting trajectory. Early on, the reformers are all about religious tolerance until they start gaining power. And then there's a discernible shift. Luther wanted everyone to have the right to share their own opinions until Luther started getting power. Luther wanted the Jews to have, he, in terms of religious tolerance, he wanted the, the reformers and the Jews to have tolerance. But then once he started gaining power, he advocated burning down synagogues. He said, put the Jews out in the field and make them work. But if you're uncomfortable with them working your land, expel them from the country. Although it's overdrawn, there is a connection historically 
between the Nazi persecution of Jews in the Second World War and some of quote and some of the quotations from Martin Luther that were used to justify that behavior. And, and we're dishonest with history. Now, some of those are taken out of context. I get it. I understand that. But we are dishonest with history if we don't recognize the Nazi regime often appealed to Luther's anti-Semitism as a justification. Here's what German Christianity has always been about. And there was a lot of things Luther said which perfectly lined up with the final solution. Calvin also began desiring private interpretation. People wanted, the reformers wanted believers reading the Bible in their own language. Let's all interpret the Bible privately. Until people started interpreting the Bible in ways that Calvin didn't agree with. So you had the Anabaptist movement. The Anabaptist movement was people who believed in believer's baptism, not infant baptism. Calvin and the reformers insisted on infant baptism because they did never got away from the Roman Catholic sacral society. That is, they wanted a church state where the state enforced the church's views. And so to have a church state, you want the whole family part of both. And that includes infant baptism. So the Anabaptists, that is people, if you're, a, if you're a Baptist, if you believe in believer's baptism today, you have to understand that the reformers, these people who give us this glorious package of these five souls and all of the rest who stood at the risk of their lives against persecution and corruption, these reformers authorized the execution of people who baptized only believers. In fact, the Anabaptists, they were re-baptized. They were all baptized as infants, but then later on, they, they, some of them would grow up and realize that they, they believed that believers' baptism was biblical, so they'd be baptized again. The Reformers, uh, when they were charged, they would either expel them or they would drown them. They believed that drowning them was a fitting punishment considering they, wanted, they had dare to be immersed as believers and go against the practice of paedo-baptism. A lot of our, and in the Baptist tradition, a lot of our great forefathers and foremothers were killed for practicing believers' baptism. Now you start working that through. There were also a whole lot of other crimes for which you could, in Geneva, in Calvin's Geneva, you were banished from the city for speaking badly about Calvin. Now that probably, uh, you know, every once in a while, some of these things seem pretty attractive. Like, like, like as a pastor of a church, I'm not sure how you would agree with this, but I'm almost all for that. You want to talk badly about me in the church? You're expelled from the city. You know, like Calvin sets that up, right? That's an incredible thing. Yeah, you speak, you don't agree with my theology, I'll either drown you or you're banished. You know, that's sort of how, that's sort of how it worked. The reformers put to death all kinds of heretics. They put to death people who denied the Trinity. The argument, this would be interesting to see how you would counter this, actually. The argument was, we put to death murderers. Murder only kills the body. Heresy kills the soul. So if we're going to put to death murderers to protect people's bodies, shouldn't we put to death heretics who will damn people's souls? That was their logic. It's very interesting. Try to, try to work that through. But of course, the heretic was everyone who didn't what? Who didn't agree with the reformers. And so Michael Servetus 
who Calvin uh, had executed. There's a whole trial. There was a consistory and all the rest involved in this too. But Michael Servetus was executed for denying the Trinity and for denying infant baptism. Those don't seem like quite the same thing, theologically. But can you imagine a church-state society where denying infant baptism was grounds for death? And Servetus was executed by burning. He was burned alive. So I come to this and I go, you know, this is very interesting because the theological thought of the reformers is essentially the heartbeat of how I understand the New Testament. I love the five solas. That's everything, or that's so much rather, of what I hold dear theologically. And yet, these guys would have killed me. That gives me sort of a mixed response, you know? <laughs> like, uh, interesting, I love your theology and you would have drowned me or burned me alive. You know, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Uh, I'm a little conflicted in my overall grading of you. Like, how do I weight it? Theologically, you're great. You would have killed me, uh, like, 22%. Like, I don't, I don't know, how do, you how do you adjudicate that percentage? Mm, last week, uh, actually, Sunday morning was very special. I was able to baptize my 13-year-old daughter. But you know what? If we hadn't baptized her as an infant, neither one of us may have, may have lived to be 13 years. We, we may not have lived the last 13 years. Think about that. If I hadn't brought her to be baptized in church as an infant, I, may have been, I would have been banished from the city or maybe put to death. How can God use people who are like this? How can people be so right and so wrong. Like what they got right was like a home run again and again and again. They just nailed it all the time. It was perfect. It was great, 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 great. And what they got wrong was it was like the, the so far the other way. If this was so great, this was so appalling. This is unbelievably appalling. Putting people to death, murdering people. What is going on here? The anti-Semitism, like how can it be this bad? Where is the gray? somehow God used these people. How flawed they were. How terrible they were. The things they did were atrocious. And yet God saved the gospel through these people. We are here today with our understanding of Scripture because of this. The Holy Spirit owned this moment in church history in a powerful way. And that's just like these Bible characters we've been looking at. Oh, did God work through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, and gloriously, but they were so bad. Did God work through Solomon and David? Yes, gloriously, but they were so bad. In fact, in some ways, you can almost make an argument that to do really great things, you have to be just a, to, 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 to sin greatly, you need to be a great person. To do a lot of great good, you need to be a great person. But great people, when they sin, they really sin. Oh, but thanks be to God. It really is sola gratia. It's grace alone. And when are we going to learn that? When are we going to learn that actually, you know what? There are no heroes. There's just a bunch of really broken sinners who God will use. And God will use 
parts of your life for great glory. Other parts of your life will frankly be a legacy of shame and pain and embarrassment. But God still uses people like us to bring about his purposes. The reformers are some of the most spectacular failures in the history of the world. And God used them to literally change the trajectory of the church for good for centuries despite all of their flaws. And so if nothing else, maybe we can say, you know what, in God's grace, it doesn't legitimate our sin. But if God can use people like the people we've been looking at today, then you know what, God can use us. And in a really strange way, that's more comforting to me than when I'm showing a sort of a, a perfect you know, stained glass saint or missionary, a guy I'm never going to be like in all of my life, and be told, there's the standard. God only uses holy people like this. Well, if that's the case, let's just go watch TV, you know, because I'm done. I'm never going to be that guy. But if God can use spectacular failures, then he can use every one of us for his good, or sorry, for our good and for his glory. Listen, it's been a privilege for me to be here. Uh, Very, very thankful uh, for the opportunity. I appreciate your attentiveness. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then someone's going to come up. I have no idea who. Lord, we have uh, very, very quickly uh, moved through some material uh, in Scripture and in history. And Lord, I just pray that you will impress upon our hearts just how rich your grace is, that it really is grace alone that you are not dependent on our works, you're not dependent on our goodness. We don't want to just sin with license as if it doesn't matter what we do. We want to be holy to honor you. But we thank you that you work through imperfect people and you still accomplish your purposes. Encourage our hearts, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a long day, a good day. I just have two thank yous left. Uh, First of all, um, to Peter Brown. Peter's our AV steward here, tech steward. And he put in so much work uh, to get this done um, to, to, to enable us to do this. And, you know, really the AV team should have their faces on the por- uh, posters because they do so much work to make sure that these go off. So thank you for that. I know that you don't want your face on a poster, but next time, next year. Uh, and I want to also thank um, Glenn and Blair, uh, my co-elders, because... Together, we've, we've done a lot of work uh, getting this ready uh, in advance, so thank you for all the work behind the scenes and getting it going and uh, making sure that everything ran well. And I may have forgotten somebody. If you've helped in some way, thank you. Uh, and I want to thank you. Thank you for coming. As I said at the very beginning, uh, you all had other things you could have done today, but you decided to be here. I, I hope and I pray that you've been blessed by the time that you've spent here. Our goal was to encourage men in the grace of God, and so Whether or not we were a success or a spectacular failure depends upon did we encourage you in the grace of God. Were you able to see that God will use men in spite of who they are because of his grace? And the complication or implication of that is that God will use you if you are open to it. Not because you're good, not because you're, you're better than other men, not because you haven't failed or sinned, but because of God's grace. And if, if we accomplish that, then this was a spectacular success. 
I'm going to leave you with the Word of God. Uh, first, though, we'll be handing out these on the way out. I would invite you back, not for the ladies' Christmas event, but Jody Cross, if you heard of Jody Cross, will be here on December 15th. And so there's a Rejoice Christmas concert here. You're welcome. Free admission. And then if you're out of town and you can't be at church on 24th, we celebrate Christmas Eve on the 23rd. So come and worship with us on the 23rd. Now the word of God. I think it's only right that we, we give the last word to him. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carving out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift. A gift from God. It's not a result of works. So no one of us may boast. But now we're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Go with peace in the grace of God. God bless you.